I would encourage you to take your Bibles and open them to Philippians chapter 4. This morning we are finishing up the book of Philippians as we have spent many, many months going through this book and we come now to our final message as we come to the end of Philippians chapter 4. According to a 2014 survey done by the Pew Research Center, 22% of Minnesotans are Roman Catholic. And in Roman Catholicism, they teach a view of saints that is different from the biblical teaching of saints. The Roman Catholic Church teaches Roman Catholics, that they should pray to saints. In fact, listen to what the Catechism of the Catholic Church says about the intercession of saints. It says this, Being more closely united to Christ, those who dwell in heaven fix the whole church more firmly in holiness. They do not cease to intercede with the Father for us as they proffer the merits which they acquired on earth through the one mediator between God and men, Christ Jesus. So by their fraternal concern is our weakness greatly helped. Later on in the catechism it says this, their intercession, speaking of saints, their intercession is their most exalted service to God's plan. We can, this is what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, they say we can and should Ask them to intercede for us and for the whole world. What are they saying? You should pray to these dead, so-called saints. But how does one become a saint according to the Roman Catholic Church? Well, there's a five-step process to becoming a saint in the Roman Catholic Church. Let me share these five steps with you. Step number one, a person must be dead for at least five years. In the Roman Catholic Church, that's what they teach. In order to become a saint, you must be dead for at least five years. The process to making a person a saint doesn't start until five years after death. However, that waiting period can be waived by the Pope as was done in 2005 for Pope John Paul II and in 1999 for Mother Teresa. Step number two. After those, after that five-year waiting period is up, then an investigation needs to be opened up about the person's life to see whether or not they live their life in holiness and can be considered for sainthood. If, after the investigation, there is enough evidence for sainthood, then a bishop asks the congregation for the causes of the saints. Okay, that's like the department where you go that makes recommendations to the Pope for these saints. So a bishop will go and ask the congregation, this department, for permission to open up the case for this person to consider them to be a saint. If the case is open for this person to be considered for sainthood, at this point, then they are called a servant of God. They're then labeled as a servant of God. But then there's a third step, step number three. The congregation for the causes of the saints scrutinizes the evidence of the candidate's holiness, work, and signs that people have been drawn to prayer through their example. So essentially what they're saying there is that there must be evidence that people are drawn to pray to this saint because of their great example that they've done, how they've lived their lives while they were alive here on earth. And if the congregation approves the case, then it's passed on to the Pope. Then if the Pope decides that the person lived a life of heroic virtue, they can then be called venerable the next label that's put on them. But then there's a fourth step. 
Step number four, after being called venerable, the next stage is called beatification. Beatification. But in order to reach this stage, there must be a miracle, listen to this, there must be a miracle that's attributed to the prayers that people have made to this person considered for sainthood. Which means there must have been a miracle that's happened because somebody has prayed to that saint. And to the Catholic Church, if this happens, if a a miracle happens because someone prayed to this person, then this is proof to them that this person is in heaven instead of waiting in purgatory. Which, by the way, doesn't exist. Right? Purgatory is a lie. It doesn't exist. It's not found in Scripture anywhere. But if there's a miracle that happens because somebody prayed to this saint then what the Roman Catholic Church is saying, well, that person then must be there in heaven. And after beatification, the person is then given the title blessed or blessed. Then there's a fifth step, step number five. The final step is called canonization. Canonization. This comes after a second miracle has been attributed to that person. There must be at least two miracles that are attributed to this person that's considered for sainthood. Unless you're Pope John Paul XXIII. In which case, Pope Francis waived this requirement for him because he said there was such widespread support for Pope John Paul XXIII and the large number of miracles that were attributed to him. You can wave it. The Pope can do that. But if the person makes it this far, then in this final step, there will be a large ceremony or a special mass in which the Pope will chant a prayer and declare that person a saint. That's the process in the Roman Catholic Church, to becoming a saint. But as we read in our text here this morning, you're going to see that this process is unbiblical. It's not found in Scripture anywhere. It's completely unbiblical. We're going to see Paul here addressing saints who never went through that process to become a saint. Because that's not what Scripture teaches about being a saint. Follow along as I read our passage for us found in Philippians 4 beginning in verse 20. Philippians 4 beginning in verse 20. Paul says this, now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now you'll notice that Paul speaks about saints in verses 21 and 22. He's speaking there about saints, and he's speaking to saints. And he commands the Philippians to send his greeting to every saint in Christ Jesus. And he wants the Philippians to know that the saints where he is at in Rome greet them as well. This is saint to saint. Greet the saints as the saints greet you. He's greeting the saints. The saints are greeting each other. Now who are these saints? Who are these saints here? Are they people who have gone through the five-step process of the church in order to be canonized as a saint? Obviously not. So what is a saint? Well, the Greek word for saint is the word hagios. And it means to be separated or set apart unto God. To be separated or set apart unto God. It can also be translated as holy or holy one. In fact, in the the NAS, the NASB, the, the word saint is footnoted with another definition, and it says, Holy One. There's a footnote there in the NAS. If you're reading that, and you'll see the footnote there says, Holy One. Saints are Holy Ones. 
holy ones. Now, you might be thinking, well, I thought that God alone was holy. Well, remember what Peter says in 1 Peter 1.16. Peter reminds us there, he says, you shall be what? Holy for I am holy. You shall be holy for I am holy. God alone is holy in that he is totally separated from sin. Completely perfect. But Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4 tells us that God is holy, holy, holy. As the angels worship him. They proclaim that he is holy, holy, holy. God alone is completely separated from sin. God is the only one in all of Scripture who has that attributed to him. In which it is repeated three times. Holy, holy, holy. That's never said about any person, any saint on earth. And as saints, we are to be separated from sin. Not that we're perfect, as we saw back in chapter 3, where Paul talks about that he has not become perfect. We know that. We understand that we will not become perfect, but we are to be separated from sin unto God. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6 that we have died to sin and are no longer slaves of sin. You and I, as believers, are dead to sin. We're no longer slaves of sin. Sin is no longer our master. In fact, in Romans 6.11, Paul says this, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We're dead to sin. Sin no longer masters us. Paul then goes on, Romans 6. In Romans 6.14, he says, For sin shall not be master over you. And so, as saints, we have been separated from sin unto God. And that there is the definition of a saint. Someone who is separated from sin unto God. Now, when does this happen? When does this happen? When does someone become a saint? Is it five years after their death? Is it after a five-step process that is done by the church? No, it's not. When does it happen? It happens at the moment of salvation. At the moment of salvation. At the moment that Christ saved you, that was the moment that He separated you from sin unto Himself and you became a saint. You became a saint. Why did he do this? Why did he make you a saint? So that you could live your life to serve him. So that you could walk in good works and bring glory and honor to his name. In fact, Ephesians 2.10 tells us this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not saved by good works, but we're saved for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. That's to be our lives. We're to live our lives in good works unto our Lord. We've been separated from sin unto God so that we might live holy lives and bring glory to Christ. Now as we look at these four verses here in Philippians 4, I want us to see what a true saint is. If a true saint is not someone who is dead and is to be prayed to, then what is a true saint? We saw the definition of a saint, but how does a saint live? What does it look like? What does it mean to be a true saint? As we work our way through this passage here this morning, we're going to see three truths about a true saint. Three truths about a true saint. Truth number one is this. True saints continually give God glory. True saints continually give God glory. Notice what Paul says there in verse 20. He says this, Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. 
Now, I, I touched on this verse a little last time as we saw, bre- we saw Paul break into this doxology and praise God for his promise to take care of his children. God promises that he will take care of us. And Paul then comes in and he breaks into this doxology as he's ending the letter here. But I want to expand on this verse a little bit more because there are some things that we learn from this verse about worship as Paul breaks into a doxology here. What is a doxology? It is a short, spontaneous acknowledgement of praise to God. That's what a doxology is. A short, spontaneous acknowledgement of praise to God. And a doxology usually has three parts to it. Here's the three parts. Part number one is that it is given to the person that is mentioned. There is a person who is mentioned that praise is given to, which here in this doxology is God the Father. That's the first part. It's mentioning the person in whom praise is being given to. Second then is the the word of praise that is given. Usually being the word glory. In fact, we see that there in verse 20. To our God and Father be the glory. So it gives us that word of praise. And then third, the doxology ends with a description of time. Normally what is called an eternity formula. Which where where Paul says there in verse 20, forever and ever. Right? There's a unit of time there. Forever and ever. That's a doxology. You see, true saints live a life of worship unto God. We live a life of worship unto God. We live a life that longs for and desires to bring glory to God. And not that God lacks glory in any, se- in any sense and needs glory from us, right? God does not lack anything. He doesn't lack glory as if He needs more glory from us because in some way He lacks it. God lacks nothing. But we live a life that longs for and desires to bring glory to God in the sense that we live our lives not bringing glory to ourselves, but rightly giving glory where glory is due. The world, who are not saints, who do they live for? Self. Who do they want to bring glory to? Self. It's all about them. And they do everything in their life to bring glory and honor and praise to self. It's all about them. They're not saints. So of course they would do that. But that's not the life of a a saint, of a true saint. We live our lives in praise and worship to our God, desiring for Him to be glorified. Now, notice what Paul says there at the beginning of verse 20. Notice he says there, now to our God. What's interesting here is that if you look back at verse 19, notice what Paul says there at the beginning of verse 19. He says, and my God. And my God. He goes from my God in verse 19 to our God in verse 20. You see that there? From my God to our God. He goes from personal to corporate here. He wants them to know of the unity that we as saints have as we give glory to God, which is one of the main themes of Philippians, right? It's all about unity. He's been teaching us throughout the book of Philippians that we are to be unified. And you can see as he's ending this letter now where he says, now to our God, unity, be unified. As we collectively give worship unto our God as saints of God. You see, worship to God is not something that just the great Apostle Paul does. But this is something that all of the saints of God do. And Paul's expressing that he is united with them in giving this glory unto God. There's unity that happens as each one of us individually are giving glory unto God, giving praise unto God, giving worship unto God. 
And who does Paul give praise and glory to? Notice Paul says, our God and Father. And he's saying collectively, you and I need to give praise and glory to our God and Father. God here is His essence. That is, He is the one and the only true and living God. That's who He is. There is only one God, right? Only one. He is the one God that deserves all glory, all worship, all praise, all adoration. God is His essence. And then Father is His position and role. But He is our God and Father, which means we are His what? His children. Right? We are all His children. As saints, we are adopted children of the one true and living God. That's what you and I are. He's not only our God, but He is also our Father as we are His children. And then notice what Paul says there. He continues on and he says, be the glory. Be the glory. What is this glory that Paul is talking about? What does he mean by be the glory? Well, glory is the Greek word doxa. Doxa, from which we get doxology. Doxology. That's why we call verse 28 doxology, because it's giving glory, doxa, to God. To Christ. And that Greek word doxa, it has to do with ascribing glory. It's a word of praise that expresses worship unto God. As one commentator says, glory denotes the transcendent praise and worship of which He is worthy. It denotes the transcendent praise and worship of which He is worthy. To give glory to God is to worship Him. It's to worship Him. It's to praise Him. For He is the one and only who is worthy of our praise. Which if you'll notice, Paul says, to our God and Father be the glory. You see that there? That article? There's an article there. The glory. This means that this is something that uniquely belongs only to God. He gets the glory. Because He is the only one who deserves the glory. He is the only one who is uniquely qualified to receive any glory. Because He's the one true and living God. Glory alone is His. And even though man tries to take the glory from God, he can't. He can't. All glory uniquely belongs to God. And Paul has already told us this back in chapter 2 and verse 11 where Paul says this, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. That Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. To the glory of God the Father. You see, the, the ultimate crescendo will be at Christ's return when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the ultimate. Every. That means saints and non-saints will all confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. They will all bow the knee to Christ and confess Him as Lord. Every tongue will. No one at this point will be able to try and declare themselves Lord. They won't be able to. They will not be able to bow the knee to Christ and say, I am Lord. Won't happen. It will be impossible for them to do that. Because every knee will bow and will confess what? Jesus Christ is Lord. They will do that. No one at this point will be able to bring glory to themselves. No one. All glory will be to Christ our King. And every tongue will confess 
that Christ is Lord and all glory will be God's and God's alone. But isn't that what every saint does now? We don't have to wait until Christ returns to confess Him as Lord, to give praise and glory and honor to Him as Lord of our lives, right? We don't have to wait until the second coming of Christ. We do that now. We are worshipers of God now. That's what we're doing here this morning. We are declaring that Christ is King and that He deserves all glory and all honor and all worship. We are currently worshipers of God. Now, what does this mean that we are worshipers of God? Does it mean that we just sing a bunch of praise songs 24-7? Is that what that means to be a worshiper of God? No, obviously that's not what we do. We don't just sing praises, worship songs, hymns, spiritual songs unto the Lord 24-7. We don't do that. So what is worship? Turn over with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Hold your finger in Philippians 4 and turn to John chapter 4. In John 4, we see here Jesus speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well. As Jesus comes there and is thirsty, we see this woman who is coming to, to draw water Jesus has this interaction with the Samaritan woman here at the well. And notice what Jesus says down in verse 23. He tells this Samaritan woman, But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. What does it mean to truly worship God? Well, first notice what Jesus says in verse 24 there. That God is spirit. God is spirit. Why is this important for us to know? It's important because we have to realize that God is not confined to one place. God is not confined to one place. God is spirit. God is not material, but is spiritual. His essential nature is spirit. So we can worship God whenever and wherever we are. He is not in the form of something where we have to go to a special place in order to worship Him. Now we gather here on Sunday mornings because that's what we're commanded to do, right? To come together, to meet together, to worship God. But this is not the only time, at least I hope it's not, and it shouldn't be the only time that we worship God throughout the week. When we leave from here, even this morning, we're going to go to our own homes or to somebody else's home. And we are going to be able to worship God there, wherever we're at. Why? Because God is spirit. He's not confined to one place to go and worship Him. We can worship Him wherever we're at. Then notice Jesus says that those who worship Him, notice what He says there in verse 24, He says, must worship. Circle that word must. Highlight that word must. That is key for us to know. Jesus is telling us something here. And what Jesus is saying here is that there is only one way to worship God. There's only one way. Only one acceptable way for the saints of God to worship Him. How do we worship Him? Notice first, we must worship in spirit. We must worship in spirit. What does that mean? What does it mean that we must worship in spirit? It means we worship God from our inner being. Not just in some outward ritual. Worship comes from our spirit, from our inner being, from our soul, from our very heart, from inside of us. And obviously this is true. And this true worship 
can only happen in the power of the Holy Spirit. That is, it is only possible by the Spirit of God working in us that we are even able to come before God to worship Him. Right? Paul tells us that no one can declare that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit of God. What's Paul saying there? That the only way, because anybody, non-saints can say Jesus is Lord, right? They can say that phrase. But they won't ever say it from their spirit, from their inner being. Because they don't believe it. They will never declare that Jesus is Lord. They will never worship Him as Lord. Because they don't have the Spirit of God in them. In order to worship Him. They have not been born again by the Spirit of God. In order to declare Him from their inner being and say with their inner being, with their soul, from their heart, that Jesus is Lord and worship Him as Lord. They won't ever do that. But true worship must be worship in the Spirit, in the inner man. And then second, Jesus says there in verse 24 that we must worship in truth. We must worship in truth. This means that true worship is only found when we worship according to the truth of Scripture. You see, there is a lot of so-called worship today that is void of the truth. It's void of the truth. People become very passionate and very zealous in their so-called worship. But when what they are doing is void of the truth, it is not true worship. It's not. It's counterfeit worship. And they'll say all day long, oh, we're worshiping God, we're worshiping God. No, you're not. Because what you are doing here is void of the truth. It's not grounded in the truth. It's not centered on the truth. And that's why what we do here on Sunday mornings, and what we call here on Sunday mornings, we call this the worship service. What we are doing right now is called not just the Sunday morning service. No, this is the worship service. And it's different from equipping hour. And it's different from Wednesday evenings. This is the worship service. The whole service is worship unto God. Not just the time of singing hymns, but the whole service. Of course, the hymns that we sing are biblically sound and filled with the truth of God, right? What we did this morning, we'll sing again. Our final benediction is going to be filled with doctrinal truth about our God. And our spirit then praises God in response to the truth that we're singing. That's true worship. But it doesn't just stop with the hymns. When we pray biblical prayers, when we read God's word during scripture reading, when we give out of obedience to the truth that God has revealed in His Word, when we sit under the preaching of the truth of God's Word, all of that is worship. It's all worship. We hear the truth and we respond to the truth. As we sit under the preaching of God's Word, you hear the truth and what happens in your inner being? Some of you, I see it on your face. You nod and you smile and you go, and that's your inner being saying, yes, I worship God. Yes, that is true. Yes, I give praise and glory and honor to God as you sit under the preaching of God's word. It's worship. And that's true worship. And all of it is to be done in spirit and in truth from our inner being as we worship God according to the truth of his word. Donald Whitney, in his book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, he says this, The balance to worshiping in spirit is to worship in truth. 
Worship in truth is worship according to the truth of Scripture. First, we worship God as He is revealed in the Bible, not as we might want Him to be. You hear that? Not as we want God to be. That's not true worship. People will make up God in their mind and proclaim that they're worshiping Him. It's not true worship. It's a false God that they've created in their mind. It's not true worship. Donald Whitney goes on and he says, we worship Him according to the truth of who He says He is. A God of both mercy and justice, of love and wrath, who both welcomes into heaven and condemns into hell. That's the God we worship. Donald Whitney goes on, he says this, Second, worship according to the truth of Scripture means to worship God in the ways to which He has given His approval in Scripture. In other words, we should do in the worship of God what God says in the Bible we should do in worship. We do in our worship service what God has decided. We don't just come and make this up. As elders of the church, we don't meet and say, hey, guys, got any fun ideas for a worship service this morning? Or for this Sunday? How do we know how to worship God? He's revealed it in His Word. He's commanded us to do these things in His Word. The truth of God reveals to us how He wants to be worshipped. And so we worship accordingly. We're commanded to sing the truth. And so we sing. We're commanded to give in response to the truth. And so we give out of a heart of worship. We're commanded to pray the truth, to read the truth, and to preach the truth. And our spirit responds in true worship when we respond to the truth. It's all about the truth. And when all of that is done from the heart in the truth, that is true worship. And that is what saints of God do. We worship. We worship Him. Now, turn back to Philippians 4. Notice at the end of verse 20, Paul ends this doxology with four words there. He says, forever and ever, amen. How long do saints of God worship? Forever. Forever. You see, our worship began at the moment of our salvation. The moment that God redeemed us is the moment that our worship began. And when does it stop? Never. It goes on forever and ever and ever. We will always continually be worshiping God. It's what true saints do. Even when we die. We will stand before the throne of God and we will join with the angels' chorus singing, Holy, holy, holy is our Lord God Almighty. And we will be resurrected one day in glorified bodies and we will be worshiping for all of eternity, forever and ever. We will be worshiping our King. You see, true saints are not to be worshipped, but true saints are worshippers. We're worshippers. And so the first truth about a true saint is that true saint, true saints are those who continually give God glory. Let me give you a second truth. Truth number two, true saints collectively greet one another. True saints collectively greet one another. 
And as we look at these verses, I want you to notice the fellowship of the saints here. Look at verse 21. Notice what Paul says there. He says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now, at this point in the letter, many commentators believe that Paul picked up the pen at this point and began writing this himself in his own hand. Now, you might think, well, I thought Paul wrote the whole letter. Paul did write the letter. But as Paul is locked up to a Roman guard, Paul would have had a secretary there who was writing everything that he was dictating to this secretary. That's how they wrote back then. He would have had somebody who was there, possibly Timothy, possibly somebody else, possibly Epaphroditus, we don't know who it is, but somebody who was there with Paul that was writing all of this down as Paul is giving this letter or writing this letter to the Philippian believers. But as we come now to verse 21, most commentators believe that Paul took the pen in his own hand and he began writing himself. Now, why do commentators believe this? Well, because in other letters that Paul wrote, he did this very thing. For example, in 1 Corinthians 16, 21, Paul says this, The greeting is in my own hand, Paul. What is he saying there? This is my own handwriting. I am penning this now. Me, Paul. In Galatians 6.11, Paul says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. He took the pen and he started writing in large letters to them to let them know this is me, Paul, who is now writing this to you. Colossians 4.18, Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. Then at the end of 2 Thessalonians, in chapter 3 and verse 17, he says this, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this, this, listen to what he says, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This is essentially Paul signing his own name at the end of his letters. Now, why did Paul have to do this? If Paul is a secretary who's writing all this, just just tell him that, that I greet them. Write it down. Why does Paul take the pen at this point and begin to write in his own handwriting? Well, at this point in the church, did they have the New Testament? No, they didn't. They only had the Old Testament. The New Testament is being written during this time. And what could enemies of the church do since the New Testament is not completed? They could forge letters. They could forge letters and say that it came from the Apostle Paul. In fact, they tried to do this. They did this very thing. Back in chapter 2 and verse 1 of 2 Thessalonians, listen to what Paul says. He says, Now we request of you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or, listen to this, or a letter. Or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. You see, false teachers had crept in and they began teaching these things. And Paul's saying, hey, don't listen to those false teachers. If they brought you a letter, that wasn't from me. They brought you a message, a teaching, that wasn't from me. Don't listen to the false teachers. Apparently, these false teachers were coming with letters saying that they were from Paul, but they were disturbing the churches with these false teachings. And so Paul writes the final portion of 2 Thessalonians to show the church that he has authenticated this letter and that what they are reading is direct revelation from God. Because it's coming directly from the Apostle Paul, whom Christ has sent to go to all the churches. And he did it with other letters as well. Not just 2 Thessalonians, he did it with many other letters. And most likely what 
most commentators believe is that he did it here in Philippians 4 as well. What does Paul write here at the end of this letter? Notice Paul uses this word greet here. He uses greet three times in verses 21 and 22. That word greet there means to engage in hospitable recognition of another or to welcome. Welcome one another. It was used as a way to embrace one another and show fellowship. And his first use of the word is actually a command. Paul is giving a command here. Paul is saying here, I want you to greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Whoever it is that takes this letter, when Epaphroditus arrives back in Philippi, and they begin to read the letter, which is most likely the elders and the deacons, because if you go back to chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul says this, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, the elders and deacons. Whoever it is, when Epaphroditus arrives in town and he begins to read this letter, he says, I want you to greet every single saint there in Philippi from me. Send them my greeting. They were to make sure that they send a greeting from Paul to every saint in Christ Jesus. And notice that word every there that Paul uses. Notice. Look at it. See what it says there? Greet every saint. Paul doesn't use the word all here. He doesn't use the word all in some general way, but he says greet every saint. That means everyone individually. I want you to go to every single individual saint in the church and greet them and tell them, Paul says hello. Every one of them. Don't miss a single one. That is, don't just stand in the church and just tell the church, hey, Paul says hello. Anybody missing? Well, if there's anybody missing, Paul says, go and greet them. Because I want you to greet every single one of them. Go tell them. Make sure that every saint in Philippi knows that I am sending my greeting. You see, Paul wasn't selective about those whom he cared for. Listen, church, this is why every single word is so important in the Word of God, right? This is why every single word matters. Paul's not selective about who he cared for as he uses this word every. He wasn't selective about those in whom he was concerned for. He didn't have favorites, and neither does God, right? God doesn't have favorites. In fact, Romans 2.11 says, For there is no partiality with God. God doesn't show favoritism. But neither does Paul. If you were a saint, then Paul wanted you to know that he cared for you. Greet him. And isn't that how all of us should be? We should all be this way. We should care for every saint. Not just all the saints. Every single one. But who are these saints? Well, they're those who are in Christ Jesus. Notice Paul says that towards the end of that first sentence there in in verse 21. They are those who are in Christ Jesus because that is true of every saint. A saint is someone who has been dead for five years. Or has a statue made in remembrance of them. Or someone who is to be prayed to. A saint is anyone who is in Christ Jesus. That is who a saint is. If you have been saved by Christ, then you are in Christ. And God says, you are a saint. And so after service this morning, when you go and say hello to somebody, say, hello, saint. Because we're all saints. That's what God says. Your wife is a saint. Your husband is a saint. Your children, if they're believers, are saints. All those who are in Christ Jesus are saints. 
And the one who calls you a saint is God. Because you're in Christ Jesus. And notice Paul again is showing this unity in the body of Christ. Greet every single one of the saints who are there at Philippi. Don't leave anyone out. I want you to greet every single one of them. Unity. And then Paul says in the second half of verse 21, the brethren who are with me greet you. Now, who are these brethren that Paul is talking about? Well, Paul here is talking about men who have served alongside him in his ministry and imprisonment. These are his ministry associates. That's who these brethren are here. We know that Timothy is with Paul because at the beginning of the letter, Paul tells us that Timothy is there with him. And then back in chapter 2, he said that he wants to send Timothy to them, which means Timothy is with them. If we were to read Colossians and Philemon, which were written from this same imprisonment here in Rome, we see that Aristarchus and Mark are also with Paul at some point while Paul was locked up here in Rome. Then there's a man named Jesus who is also called Justice who was there with Paul. Epaphras was with Paul. Luke and Demas and possibly even Onesimus was there with Paul during this imprisonment. So it can be that some or all of these brethren were there with Paul as he's penning this letter to the Philippians. We can't be dogmatic about who it is, but we know that there were brethren, these ministry associates who were there with Paul during his imprisonment. It's even possible that some of the brethren back in chapter 1 and verse 14 who were preaching the word without fear are also part of this group brethren here. And what do they do? Notice they greet the Philippian believers. Again, you can see this great bond among the churches, right? Among the saints. As these believers who are there with Paul in Rome hear that Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians, they want to make sure that Paul sends a greeting from them as well. Who are you writing that to? Oh, to the Philippians. Oh, tell them we say hi. But here's what's great about this. Notice that Paul calls these great men of faith that we read about in our scriptures. Notice that Paul calls these great men of faith brethren. He calls them brethren. They aren't in some other category of Christianity. They aren't popes. They aren't bishops or some higher class of Christendom. These great men of faith are simply brethren. They aren't in some other class of saints, as if they are super saints while everyone else is just a saint. No, these men are just brethren. Just fellow Christians who are all on the same level because they are all in Christ Jesus. Then notice verse 21, Paul says, or verse 22, all the saints greet you. Who is that? This would be all of the other saints in Rome. Paul now broadens the greeting from his ministry associates to include all of the saints who are there in Rome during that time. Remember, at this time, there's a church that's been established in Rome. Although Paul is locked up in prison, there is a church that's there. The gospel has spread to Rome. And if you were to read the end of the book of Romans, you can see a long list of faithful servants who Paul greets in the church there at Rome. He wants the Philippian saints to know that the Roman saints send a greeting to them as well. This is one big collective greeting. Not only does Paul send his greeting, but so do his ministry associates and so do the saints at Rome. But then there's another group of people. Notice the end of verse 22. Notice what it says there. Especially those of who? Caesar's household. Especially those of Caesar's household. Who is Caesar's household? Well, this is not talking about Caesar's family. Specifically just his family. But Caesar's household would include the highest officials in the Roman government all the way down to the lowest servants that the emperor would employ. In fact, turn quickly back to chapter 1 and verse 12. Chapter 1 and verse 12. 
Notice what Paul says there. He says, now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. What are his circumstances? He's locked up in Rome. He's in prison. Verse 13, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. See, even though Paul is locked up in chains, the gospel is still going out and people are getting saved. Now remember who Paul is locked up with every day, 24-7. Who is Paul locked up with? A Roman guard. Chained. It's an 18-inch chain. One would be locked to him, the other side would be locked to the Roman guard, 24-7. And they would be on shifts and they would rotate. Who does this Roman guard belong to? The Praetorian Guard. Just what he says in verse 13. And as Paul is locked to these Roman guards, guess what every single one of these Roman guards is going to hear? The gospel. Oh, you're next. Come on, lock up. We got time. Let me tell you. Paul's going to preach the gospel to them. To the whole Praetorian Guard. The gospel just continues to go forth amongst these Roman soldiers who were there. And because they work for Caesar, these Roman guards, because they work for Caesar, they would be considered a part of Caesar's household. They would be the Praetorian Guard. But it didn't just stop at the Roman guards. Notice the gospel also spread at the end of verse 13 there to everyone else. This would include the slaves and the freedmen who served as staff for Caesar. For everyone else who worked for Caesar. Now, remember church, Philippi was known as a little Rome. Remember we've talked about this before. They were known as a little Rome. It was a Roman colony, and the people in Philippi understood the patriotism and the loyalty to Caesar. These Philippian believers, they knew the patriotism and the loyalty of those Roman people, those Roman citizens back in Rome. Because they were a small Roman colony themselves. These Philippian believers, they would have understood how loyal people were to Caesar. But now they get a greeting, not just from saints who are citizens of Rome, but also from saints who are serving in Caesar's household in Rome. Think about this. Think about, as this letter is being read the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Wait, did, did you just say Caesar's household? There are saints there? Yeah. There are. But I thought they're loyal to... Yeah, no, they're loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because they're saints. They've been saved. They've heard the gospel. I mean, think about this news to the Philippian believers. This is fantastic news. Wait, even Caesar's household got saved? Yep. Even those within Caesar's household, they got saved. As one commentator says, it's as if Paul is saying, think of it. You have brothers and sisters in Christ within the inner circle of Nero's household who know of you, pray for you, and want you to know of their kinship in Christ with you. This is marvelous news. No one is above salvation or too far below salvation. God wants that all would come to repentance. And He will even save those who were a part of Caesar's household. He will even save those who are in our government. He will. Because He's a saving God. 
And what joy this must have brought the Philippian saints to know that the gospel had penetrated Caesar's household. Oh, lock up Paul. Great. Lock him up. Now guess what he gets to do? Preach the gospel right into Caesar's household. (laughs) All those guards that come to see him, they're all going to hear the gospel. That's the power of the gospel. It's the power of the gospel. And it's the gospel that unites us in Christ. And so, true saints continually give God glory, collectively greet one another. Finally, truth number three, quickly, true saints count on God's grace. Turn back to chapter four and look at verse 23. True saints count on God's grace. Verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is Paul's great closing to his letters. This is Paul's final benediction. And he always ends with a grace wish for those he's writing to. In fact, in every one of his 13 letters, he ends with this grace wish, this prayer that the grace of Christ be with them in every one of them, including even the end of Hebrews, by the way. You'll see it there. But he opens up his letter to the Philippians with a prayer of grace for them. Back in chapter 1, he says, grace to you. And then he ends, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with your spirit. He sandwiches this letter with grace. With grace. Why? Because he knows that every saint is dependent upon grace. Every saint is dependent upon grace. What is grace? Simply put, it is unmerited favor. It's getting something that you don't deserve. It's receiving something that you haven't earned or worked for. But the Roman Catholic Church is teaching that to be a saint, you have to have earned it. After they look at all the work that you've done in your life, If there are so-called miracles done because someone prayed to you, well, then you can be pronounced a saint by the Pope. But listen, church, that is not what the Bible teaches. That's a lie from the pits of hell. That is what this false church is teaching people. It's a lie. How does someone become a saint? By the grace of God. By the grace of God. When we repent of our sin and put our faith in Christ, we become a saint. It's all by God's grace. When does this happen? The moment of our salvation. Because all of salvation is by God's grace, right? Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. You cannot boast in being a saint. You're a saint by God's grace. All who are in Christ Jesus are saints by God's grace. We relied on God's grace to save us and we continue to depend upon God's grace throughout the entirety of our life. Our whole life is lived under the grace of God. It's lived by grace. Notice Paul specifically says the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord meaning he has all authority. Jesus is his human name by which he humbled himself and came to save us. Which we saw back in chapter 2 in the Christ hymn. And Christ points to his rightful place, office as the Messiah. The anointed one of God who has fulfilled all of God's promises and all of the prophecies in the Old Testament. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one. As one commentator says, the humble one, Jesus, is now exalted, is the exalted one, Lord. And the anointed one, Christ, will at his coming be openly acknowledged as supreme. He's the supreme one. And we're saints by his grace. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what our Lord has done because of His perfect life, because of His death on the cross, because of His resurrection. It's all because of Him. All by His grace. 
Listen, church, we are not saints because of our own works. Not because of some good that we've done. We're saints because of the work of Christ and what He has done to save us. And Paul wants us to remember that. That it's all by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we live in light of that truth and bring all glory and all worship and all honor and all praise to our Lord and Savior as we live in fellowship with one another, remembering that we are all children of God, saints by His grace. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this glorious truth. Oh, it is so rich, so wonderful, so magnificent. Lord, it's all by Your grace. We thank You that You have saved us, that You've called us, that You've chosen us to be Yours. If it was up to us, none of us would be saved. But we thank You that it is not up to us, but it's all by Your grace. We thank You for Your saving grace. And Lord, I pray that You would help us to live as saints saints who are called by You, that we would live our lives in worship and praise and glory and adoration to You as we live our lives in obedience to Your Word in the truth. Help us to be those who worship in spirit and in truth. May we continue to cling to the truth, run to the truth, come to know You more through the truth that You've revealed to us in Your Word. Father, I pray for anyone who's here this morning who is not a saint. Lord, I pray that they would understand and recognize that their sin has separated them from You. That they are dead in their trespasses and sins, spiritually dead. But we know that God, You make spiritually dead sinners alive. And so Lord, we pray that You would grant them the gift of repentance and faith that they would turn from their sin and trust in You. That You would grant them the free gift of eternal life and that they would live their lives as saints in worship and praise and glory and adoration to You and You alone. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.